What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Planeswalkers Anonymous, the only magic podcast playing with exclusively mystery booster playtest cards. So, if you or anyone in your life shares our obsession with Luffy Lobster or Patient Turtle, we are here for you. We won't rehabilitate, but we'll have a lot of fun. I'm Duncan, casting card name with Donovan. So, Donovan, does my spell resolve? Uh, sure. You know what, though? I actually really do want to, like, get a deck of those, like, oversized, like, poster-sized cards. Like, 60 of those. Yeah. Just like you mentioned, playing exclusively with the playtest cards. I was thinking that would be fun. Oh, it'd be funny to play with, like, a 60-card giant deck. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I don't think I'd actually ever be allowed to play with that anywhere. But I would really want to, like, have it with me at, like, an FNM. And, like, sit down at the table and put it on the table and, like, see what my opponent says. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could make a mock-up, right? Well, yeah, sure. But, like, I want them to be cards printed by Wizards of the Coast, you know? <laughs> like, they're real magic cards. Right. So you guys have a, uh, what is it, a Nissa? Like that up at the store? We've got a Vivian on the wall and an Oath of a Johnny. Yeah, a Vivian and Oath of a Johnny. So you've got two already. You know, any idea what those... Sadly, they are different. Because one of them is from Magic Fest, and it's got the Magic Fest card back, mm-hmm. and the other one's a promotional item from Wizards of the Coast, and it's got like an actual Magic card card back. Okay, so you'd have to pick one or the other, but you've got one already. Of course, you know, if I can get myself some like three foot sleeves. <laughs> Do you know what those cost? Uh, 2,000 tickets. All right, now convert <laughs> that to a dollar sign for me. Uh, 20 tickets is about $4, so... About five bucks for a ticket. Jeez. Right? No. Other way around. Five tickets to a dollar. Okay, so it's about 20 cents a ticket. Yeah, but 2,000 divided by five would give us... Yeah, 40,000 cents. So, 400 bucks? $400. So, your 60-card deck is going to end up costing you uh, $24,000. Yeah, somebody told me I should just buy them, and I was like, I think I'll pass. Like, I, told, I had told this idea to a customer at the store one time. And they're like, oh, man, yeah, you should, like, go on TCG Player and buy them. I was like, um, no thanks. Yeah, I think our, our rough math ends up at $24,000. <laughs> but honestly, I think that's I think that that's inflated. I think that the Magic Fest ticket price on them is probably actually higher than the dollar price on them. Yeah. I bet you people don't resell them for hundreds of dollars. I bet you they're, like, 80 bucks a piece or something like that. All right, fair enough. How about events? We kind of haven't really addressed events recently, but the... You know, there's still something happening, sort of. Yeah, we've got the online Magic Fest stuff. Mm-hmm. We're still on Season 1, though, right? So they haven't actually concluded one yet? Right. It's just been the qualifier events? Yep, pretty much. I mean, so they've got, like, the daily qualifiers and then the weekly championships. And this is sort of why we haven't been bringing it up, is they do have a thing going on every week, you know? But, like, the weekly championship has a whole list of eight O deck lists. Um, but they also have a top eight and stuff, and I just was checking these things out today, see if there's anything we should mention on the show, and I just noticed that among these things, the Rakdos Sacrifice deck is kicking butt. Like, it's, a, it's showing up a bunch at the top levels. Yeah, there was an article put out a week or two ago from, I believe it was LSV, mm-hmm. where he's talking about how that's a really good deck, and uh, everybody has jumped on board. I believe we were talking about that a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah, definitely. About information cascade. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what happened here. So you don't think that the deck is all that good? Oh, I think it is. I just think it is. Oh, okay. That's 
what happened. Sure. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. Sometimes information cascades are caused by the deck being good. Yeah, sure. I also noticed that when I was looking at the deck list, the week one top eight may have had a lot of great magic players in it, you know, but I didn't recognize any of them. And so that's what I was expecting from the week two. But the week two top eight had Eli Loveman, uh, Mateus Leverato, Andre Strasky, and Ali Warfield all in the top eight for the week two championship. I was like, man, that's a stacked event right there. Yeah, that sounds uh, sounds like uh, some good players did well. Yeah, which isn't really surprising, you know, but that they're all all on this one and none of them on the first one. That's what I was like, man, that seemed was surprising, you know. Hey, week one's got Yvonne Flock. Okay, like I said, I'm sure that there are, there are players yeah, in week one who are good. Yeah, I I didn't know. Actually, you know what? I think I might have heard of Mark Jacobson, but also his name is Mark Jacobson, so maybe I haven't. (laughs) Yeah, I don't actually think it means anything. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Like, week one was just, you know, this is Magic Players Online. There's a lot of them. If you take eight ones that did well from that group, it is unlikely I'll know any of them, you know? That seemed seemed like what I would expect, but then when I looked at week two, it was like four of them were super famous Magic Players, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, these are... The people that went 5-0 in a thing throughout the week and then made top eight of the event on the weekend. Yeah. Of a, of players that are only people who managed to go 5-0 during the week. Yeah. So it's like the good players are likely to rise to the top. Definitely. Yeah, but yes, I thought that was interesting. And then I uh, thought this Rakdo Sacrifice deck was making a splash. So we might bring that up. And we'll have a, a link so yeah. you can check out those deck lists, including the Sacrifice deck, if that's something that you are interested in doing. But I just... My comments about it being an information cascade thing mm-hmm. is just that there's nothing new in this deck. This deck has been here. It's existed. There's no reason for it to be suddenly doing well. Yeah. It's just somebody good said it was good. So I don't think this deck was bad before. I just think that people didn't realize it. Also, I just noticed, so this wasn't made clear to me, like, anywhere else in their coverage of the event. So I wasn't sure how the event was structured and maybe they didn't have, like, an actual winner. But I just noticed off to the side... One of these little, like, news blurbs is Andre Strasky wins Magic Fest's online weekly championship. So apparently Andre Strasky actually won week two. Didn't know that until I saw this sidebar. I thought he quit Digital Magic. He said he was going to. I guess we just can't trust him. <laughs> but yeah, no, there's a winner. Yeah, do you know who won week one? Maybe that's what we should be mentioning in our events section during this whole... I think right now we probably should. There will be a season's finals tournament, but we probably should do the weekly things. How do I find who won? Yeah, that's the thing. I didn't know. I looked around and I was like, oh, well, maybe there's not a specific winner. But then I saw this little sidebar news line that was like, hey, Andre Strasky won. I'm like, oh, I guess there is a winner. So great coverage, Channel Fireball. Great coverage. Mark Jacobson won the first one. Okay, Mark Jacobson won the first one. Yep. All right. Well, so we're gonna try and keep up with what's going on with the uh, the online Magic Fest seasons, and it looks like week one, Mark Jacobson won with Sultai Escape, and week two is my World Championship champion Andre Strasky. Your champion from the World Championship? Yeah, that <laughs> Andre Strasky with mid ramp. Hey, do you want to uh, talk some about the news? Yeah. Cool. Your daily newspaper. We have news. We do. We have a little bit. It's not not a lot, but we had a an April Fool's joke from Wizards of the Coast. Did you take a look at that? Yeah, that's what I was talking about when you were gone. Was I was like, I actually kind of like this secret lair. Yeah. But mostly because Goblin Snowman is in it. Yeah, so that's kind of funny because when I was first looking at this, 
you know, obviously, it would be a terrible April Fool's joke if they had labeled it, hey, this isn't serious, we're kidding, you know? So, when I first looked at it, I kind of suspected, but I was like, what? Because Goblin Snowman and Mudhole are actually interesting cards, if not good ones. Yeah. But then Squire and Stormcrow. So, like, for anyone who doesn't already know, on April 1st, Watsi put out a secret layer announcement for a secret layer titled, <clears throat> quote, Wizards of the Coast presents, after great deliberation, we have compiled and remastered the greatest Magic Gathering cards of all time ever. Secret layer. And it had four cards in it. Stormcrow, Goblin, Snowman, Mudhole, and Squire. So, back to what I was saying, is Squire and Stormcrow are just one-twos for two. Stormcrow has flying. So clearly, that's yeah, like, not good. what? <laughs> but uh, Mudhole is actually, it's a, a red and two. It says target player exiles all land cards from their graveyard, and it's an instant. And uh, it's not a good card, you know, there's very few times when that would be useful, but it's a unique card, you know? Yeah. So I could see that as something in a secret layer with some other, like, land destruction or something-themed stuff. And Goblin Snowman is a fun card. Yeah, I part of why I think this is so fun is I actually very recently, before we had to close the shop down, I was selling some cards to somebody, and I looked through my own personal binder to see if I had one for them, and they saw my stack of Goblin Snowmans in my binder of stuff I wanted to keep, and they're like, what is that? And I was just like, the Goblin Snowman? And they're like, let me see that. And like, I let them look at it, and they're like, this is hilarious. How do I acquire one of these? I was like, I mean, you're buying other stuff. You can just have that. <laughs> it's not even the stores. It's just mine. <laughs> but, and so I was just like, I spread the love of Goblin Snowman to someone else relatively recently. For anyone who isn't familiar with it, you want to let us know what Goblin Snowman is on the podcast? Yeah. He's a red and three for a goblin creature. He's a 1-1 that says, when Goblin Snowman blocks, prevent all combat damage that would be dealt to and by it this turn. Then has tap Goblin Snowman deals one damage to target creature it's blocking. And so the idea is you have a goblin here and he hides behind his snowman and blocks something and he reaches out and stabs the guy and he's blocking mm -hmm. and, you know, he builds another snowman for next turn. But I just, I love that card. It's a card that I've thought was hilarious since I discovered it, like... 10 years ago or something like that. I like the art treatment they did for the Secret Lair Goblin Snowman, though. I think it's good. I think it's pretty cool. It's less funny, but it's very cool. Yeah, it's it's not as funny, but it's neat looking. And and you know what? The mud hole looks fine, too. The squire looks stupid. That's terrible. What? You don't like his this man's heart tattoo? I Actually, I guess that's mildly amusing. That's an alright, but I just mean that... I don't know, this shirtless dude is not a cool-looking magic card. I think that's supposed to be the idea. Yeah, I, I understand that. <laughs> I like that. I think that's good art direction. And then the, uh, I don't know, the Stormcrow one just looks just looks like a slightly extended artwork for Stormcrow. Did you read the descriptions of the cards from the Secret Lair? Yeah. I think they're pretty good. Yeah, um, the the pretty quotes fun. of people talking about how good they are. Yeah, and that's actually... So that's one of the reasons why I like I almost bought this at first. Like when I just like read the Goblin Snowman one, like that makes a decent case for Goblin Snowman. Like, yeah, it's not really gonna make a great case for it being one of the best cards in all of Magic, but it, for being his favorite card, like I get that, you know? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> 
But I, I thought that was fun. How newsworthy it is, I don't know, but I thought it was worth talking about because it was a fun thing that Watsy did. Yeah, and uh, for anyone that's listening to this, I don't think we're going to go through and read the stuff, but I do think it's worth t- your time to click the link and go read the people's the quotes from Magic players on why this card is the best Magic card of all time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's I think that good. is worth your time. So, you know, attacking with a 1-2 on turn 3 is the best thing that you can be doing. Wait, this 1-2 can attack on turn 3 with evasion? Even better. Yep, pretty good stuff. I think the only other thing, well, the only other major thing in the news, there's a whole bunch of stuff about Ikoria in the news, Donovan. Can you believe it? But What? It's like that set's supposed to come out sometime soon. We will talk about that after the break. The other uh, news thing is also related to Ikoria, but was they... Mike Turian has gone on the mothership to let us know what's going to be showing up in these collector boosters for Ikoria. You want to lay that out for us, Donovan? How, how is this different from previous collector boosters? Um, there's, there's less basic lands. <laughs> I think both of the previous sets had two basic lands. Foil basic lands, this only has one. Oh. Um, so what what's in these things, Donovan? Oh. Well, we've got one foil or non-foil Godzilla monster series card, which I guess is different because that's the the new thing. Yeah, I think we should we should probably talk about that for a moment because last week the in the last week this has become very clear. Not like everyone knows about it, but last time we talked about these things on the shows, we were like, "Are these Godzilla things real?" Yeah, and also we were kind of wondering if they were going to be the showcase cards, and they're apparently not the showcase cards. Yeah, so. Apparently, this is just a bonus thing. I think that you can get these Godzilla cards with, like, buy a box promos and these collector boosters. Do you know where else you can find these? Japanese booster packs. Cool. And, I don't know, what what do you think? We kind of talked about it last week, I guess, like... Oh, I think that they're silly, and I don't like the, the way they went with them, but I think it's not really a problem. I think I was probably a little bit over-hesitant on them, but... Mm-hmm. I think that they're the kind of thing that I don't like what they did, but it's not really a problem. I think there's really a lot more of them than I expected. I thought they were going to be like, you know, have three or four different Godzilla monsters. Yeah. Apparently they've done like a whole bunch of different things. Like there's Mothra and a couple different versions of Godzilla and a couple different versions of Space Godzilla and a baby Godzilla and a regular Godzilla. Like, mm-hmm. Saw a lot of different Godzilla, and that's just the stuff that I've seen. I'm sure there's more put out, like I told you earlier, didn't... And we've got Caesar. Yeah, King Caesar. Like, there's just... Those are just the things I've seen. Like, there's a bunch of, uh... A bunch of stuff that's come out already that I haven't had a chance to, to look at yet. There's 19 Godzilla cards, just so you know. Okay. But that's just the first thing in here, right? We got one, one Godzilla Monster Series card in the Collector Booster. So we got one foil showcase card or borderless Planeswalker card. One foil rare or mythic, one non-foil showcase rare or mythic, one non-foil extended art rare or mythic, one non-foil Ikoria commander card, two non-foil showcase common or uncommon, two foil uncommons, four foil commons or lands, one foil basic land, and one foil token. For some reason they said that foil commons or lands, um, they are the common dual lands is what it's talking about. I don't okay. know why it needed to specify. Yeah, like, yeah, four foil commons. Got it. Could include the common cards. Right. I'm with you. I think the other the other thing worth talking about here is the showcase cards, rather than just being the Godzilla versions of these, are the actually something I really like. I, I think that I'm. it's unfortunate that I don't really care about the cards in this set so far. Like, because I don't. 
like the I mechanics think the showcase cards are going to be the uh, the mutate cards. Yeah, but like the showcase cards look fantastic. They they've got this comic book sort of style to them. Yeah, the art style. Yeah, I think they look really cool. Or you said they're the mutate, but like there's the Vivian Monsters Advocate as a comic well, book version, and the the they do also extended arts versions of the Planeswalkers, which count as a different thing. Okay, well, sure, but those are also in this sort of more comic book style artwork. Yeah, but I really like that. I like they've got the this Cloud Piercer as an example here, and I think, I think that the looks art direction great. for this set is very good. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the card design. Yeah, and we'll but, talk about that some more in a little bit. But I don't, I don't really like this set. I think it's kind of sad. But I think the art direction is very good. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, uh, there are things that I think are kind of neat, but I don't think look great. Like the uh, there's some cards that have a uh, cave painting sort of thing as the artwork because it's supposed to represent like this legend of from Icoria's past, you know? Yeah. And I don't like the way those look. I think it's neat as an idea, like, oh, this is a legend from the history of this plane, and the artwork for it is a cave painting of that thing happening. Mm -hmm. That's all a neat idea, and I think that maybe would make a cool, like, showcase version of the card or something, but I don't think it looks very good. (laughs) You telling me that cave paintings are not up to modern standards of art? Uh, Not in my opinion. But, I mean, some people think that they're particularly beautiful, you know? And so, like, I don't want to say that they're not good, just that I don't like them. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, But I I think that the collector boosters look like they have cool contents, because they've got one Godzilla monster card, so if that's something that you like, that's cool. Got some of the showcase cards in, I think the showcase cards are really great looking. What do collector boosters cost, Donovan? Uh, usually about $25. Yeah, that's, that's the limiting factor for me. It's like, that's a lot for, uh, how 15 many cards? cards? Yeah, 15 cards. Like, mm-hmm. even if, you know, their value, like, even if the cards in it add up to being more than that amount of money, they're just, I don't want to spend $25 to get what, to me, is going to be one or two neat cards. Mm-hmm. But, but not every product is for everyone. Right. That's true. And I think a lot of people are probably more excited about like. And if what you care about is showcase cards, like because that's the thing that you said was really cool, those yeah. are in regular packs. Yeah, they are. Not guaranteed. But also, I think if what you care about is showcase cards, just for the for the collector out there, this is probably a good product. Like because there's let's see, at least three guaranteed showcase cards in each pack of this. Yeah, you have two non-foil showcase commons that are uncommons, and then one non-foil oh, showcase yeah. rare or mythic, and then you also have one foil showcase. Or- yeah, so you've got three to four guaranteed in this pack, and so if like what you want is to get the showcase cards, this is your best bet. It's just a little pricey. Yeah. Uh, speaking of pricey, though, Donovan, have you got any finance advice for this episode? They didn't even need any money. They had magic cards. Well, I'm still selling magic cards to people. Not super frequently. Sure. Not as frequently as you'd like to. Doing some online magic card sales right now. Nice. And I just kind of noticed that Shockland seemed to be kind of on a downturn. And we knew that was going to happen. And I I think that this pandemic may have started it a little bit early. Yeah. And we were saying that once they started getting closer to rotating, the couple months before rotation up to the maybe a couple months after rotation was the best time to pick them up. And it looks like that's starting to happen now. Yeah. And since people aren't playing in paper, 
these cards that are only useful for current standard and are going to rotate and are starting to lose some of their value. Sure. Well, not Shockland specifically, but cards oh, that are useful okay, for playing sure. current standard. Right. Got gotcha. you. That are going to rotate out in the fall are going to kind of lose value. And of course, a lot of people who only play standard mm-hmm. don't need the Shocklands once they rotate, you know? Right. So they're starting to get rid of them. And, mm-hmm. uh, if you're looking to start playing Eternal formats, or if you play Eternal formats and there's some Shocklands you're missing, it's a good time to start looking for them. Yeah. I remember whenever Ravnica was the only set that had Shocklands in it, I had a couple from there, and they were worth 10 or 15 bucks a piece. And then Return to Ravnica came out, and they skyrocketed up, and then they came back down to 10 bucks or so, and then they were 20 or $30 before Guilds of Ravnica came out. Yeah. And some of those older ones really skyrocketed for a bit, but then they came back down as the new ones came out. Sure. And we've come down to the point where, like, you can get stomping grounds for, like, $7. Breeding pool, I think, is the most expensive one, but you can find them for, like, 12 to $15 and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a good time to kind of get some of those because I think that, yeah, if you get them in the next couple months, they won't really be good investments for getting more money back from them for another five or six years, probably. Yeah. But if you want to play with them, this is probably the next year, you know, nine months to 15 months. Like, that's probably the best time to get them. Right. And I didn't expect it to start quite so early, but I think the pandemic kind of got it an early start on the card drop because people are basically already going, okay, when this is over, I need to be ready for the rotation to happen soon. Yeah. And I think that most people who care about playing Eternal formats, they may already have this stuff. But if you don't, like, you know, Shocklands... Pretty much having a set of all of the Shocklands is kind of a must if you're going to play Modern, and I assume that's going to be true for Pioneer also, because right now, maybe you don't need Breeding Pool. Like, you're not playing a blue-green deck, you don't care about having Breeding Pool, but it is going to be an important card in that format forever, and here, maybe next year, maybe in seven years, whatever it is, you might be playing a blue-green deck in that format, you know? Yeah. So it's good to have that. Now, obviously, you know, don't buy something you don't need if you don't have the money for it. That's not my advice. I'm just saying, if it's cheap right now and you can't afford to pick it up, it's probably a good investment, even if not short-term financially, just long-term for your ability to play the game. Yeah, I think it's it's the kind of thing that if you are going to play Eternal formats, it's a good time to get them. Yeah. They're going to be staples of Pioneer and Modern forever. I think you're ready to wrap it up, take a break for a few minutes, and come back and talk more about the Ikoria stuff that's been coming out this last week. Yeah, let's give those advertisers a chance to chime in. Cool. We'll be right back. Has COVID-19 upset your plans this spring? Children are suddenly out of school, and many parents still have to work. It can be a struggle to know what to do. Nanny services and daycares have all filled up. What can you do? Let Goblin Matron help. At Goblin Matron, we always have room for one more. That's because, during this crisis, we're cutting all the red tape. Other services set a maximum number of children per caretaker and require background checks and other qualifications for their staff. Not Goblin Matron. We simply find an empty building, put in as many children as we can, Add an adult goblin, and pass the value on to you. Goblin Matron, a mother only a child could love. 
Yeah, Norman, I I used Goblin Matron once when I wanted to have a date night, and I, I left my kids with Goblin Matron, and uh, the children were fine when I got back, but there was more of them than I was expecting. So I'm not like I'm not sure about that service. I mean, so if that's always the case, then their service might be fine. The question is, where are they getting the kids? <laughs> where are these children come from? Now, if they're sometimes mixing them up among their service, that could be a problem for you, you know? But if they're yeah. always just leaving behind a bonus child... <laughs> a bonus child? <laughs> Profit. Yeah, it's probably fine. Value, right? <laughs> if you just have to keep it, then that actually sounds expensive. Why would you keep it? It's not your kid. Oh, gosh. You realize this is being recorded right now, but... <laughs> That's what human traffickers are for. When you have extra children. Okay. Before we commit a felony on this podcast, let's talk about Ikoria. All right. So we got a... Extra babies to monster babies. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got some, uh, like a bit of a flavor guide. We got a mechanics guide. And we've got all of the cards that have been spoiled so far. And stuff like that from this week. And I don't know, depending on how much we go over now and how much we find out about in the future for, you know, stuff in this set. We may or may not do a separate episode on the mechanics of Ikoria, because that's what we've done in the past, is we've had an episode devoted to the mechanics. Uh-huh. But I think last set, we did that after we got the mechanics guide, like this one that we've got here, and then we found out later there's actually a whole bunch of other mechanics that they, they didn't include. And so we may decide to do a an additional episode on mechanics later, but do you want to talk about the big ones? Well, either is the new mechanics, right? Well, not really, because it also mentions cycling. Because it wasn't in standard before. Okay. But, I mean, I guess the other mechanics that we missed out last time is the stuff that wasn't, like, named mechanics. They're just yeah. themes in the set and stuff. Sub-themes and stuff. Right, but I think that that's worth mentioning when we talk about mechanics, you know? Sure. So we'll see. We'll see what we decide to do. Maybe need to do a draft primer on the set later. Yeah, that might be fun. But anyways. Yeah, for now. What uh, what mechanics uh, are we looking at here? Mechanics being uh, spotlighted in this article here today, at least. Cycling is the first one. Yeah. It's a returning mechanic. Uh, you pay some cost, discard the card, and draw a new card. You just kind of recycle the card. There's several cards in the set that give you triggers whenever you cycle something else. And then there's a few cards in the set that trigger whenever you cycle them specifically. Yep. Which I think is kind of cool because they've done some stuff with sets in the past that triggered when you cycled cards, and they've done some stuff in sets in the past where when you cycle cards in the set, they have abilities, but I think they weren't in the same set before, or at least not prolific within the same set. Okay. And so it's kind of cool to have a good amount of both in one set. No, Rules-wise, this is real simple, though. So you just pay the cost to cycle, then you discard the card and draw a card, right? You pay the cost to cycle, which includes discarding the card. And then draw a card. Okay. And I'll tackle this one because I'm pretty sure I understand it. There's keyword counters. It's just, I think this is basically just a rules change to allow a little bit more card design space. Uh, so this may, you know, persist after Ikoria. But now, just as a card can put a plus one, plus one counter on a creature, it can put a keyword ability counter on the creature. And as is pretty clear... Without any explanation, like, a trample counter just gives the creature trample. A death touch counter would give it death touch. That sort of thing. The difference between a card that says this creature has trample until end of turn 
and put a trample counter on this creature is the effect wears off with the one and the counter persists with the other. It just gives you a way to make like an instant that permanently gives a creature a trample, right? Mm -hmm. And in order to facilitate this, uh, Watsi has made some little like cardboard counters, just kind of the punch out cards that you see from time to time with Watsi's stuff that just have keyword ability names on them. Yeah, I think these are pretty cool. I think that they're going to give people something cool to customize and stuff like that. Because if you show up to a commander match and you've got your own custom keyword counters and stuff, you're just the coolest cat at the table, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you've you've seen things for like little metal discs that say plus one, plus one on them and stuff. But those are fairly popular on like Etsy and things like that. Yeah, and so I think that these will be pretty cool. I think that people are going to come out with 12-sided dice or something like that that have different keywords on each side. Oh, yeah, that would be neat. So some stuff like that's going to come out. So there's going to be some cool knickknacks and stuff to throw in with your magic stuff that's going to come along with this that are going to give you a different way to personalize your stuff that I think is kind of neat. I'm probably going to use the punch-out things. I kind of like the... uh, So each of these punch-out things has the word and also just a little symbol. And I kind of like the the symbol for death touch because it's just a little pointy finger with kind of a starburst on the finger. And it just kind of makes me... You know, the flavor of death touch... (laughs) Yeah, but, like, the flavor of Death Touch in the cards, you know, at least so far as I have seen throughout Magic, is kind of been, like, the creature is poisonous or... or Yeah, something that's just, like, even just a little bit of it can kill you. Whereas the flavor seems to be in this symbol that it, like, literally is just some kind of magic thing where if you poke them, they die. Yeah. I've got Death Touch. Boink! Yep. Eh brush some hair away from your eyes and oh shit she died yeah no that's pretty good i thought that was just kind of amusing uh just very face value the look of it was kind of funny looking something else that i think is kind of silly is mutate do you want to tell me about how that works yeah mutate is going to be an alternative casting cost for a creature if you cast it for its mutate cost then you target a creature when you're casting it, and then mm-hmm. whenever the mutate ability resolves, you'll either put your creature under that creature or that creature under the new one. Yeah. And the creature will become one creature that has all the abilities of both, but it will be the top creature, as in like the stats, type line, converted mana cost, and name are going to be the attributes of the top card. And it's just going to have all the abilities of all the cards stacked underneath it. Right. And they've kind of split the box here to give you a spot to like have this part slide out underneath your card to show the rest of the text on the card to kind of, like, give you a clean way to represent that. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But if you cast the Mutate card and the other creature, your creature in play dies, the spell loses its target, but instead of going to your graveyard, it will just enter the battlefield as a regular creature, if it was, mm-hmm. um, which is a rule specific to Mutate to get around spell losing its target clause killing a creature. Right. But if your creature dies... Once it's mutated, mm-hmm. all of them die. It's not just like the top one dies and the other ones fall off or something like bestow. This one is just the creatures, they just all die. Right. But they do have a lot of them that have these abilities that say whenever this creature mutates, you do an mm-hmm. effect. Like their example one is whenever this creature mutates, you may discard a card if you do draw a card. And that happens whether or not this creature is the one being cast or one that's being targeted by the mutate. Right. And so you can get a bunch of triggers of those abilities if you keep stacking stuff there. Yeah. And uh, I think this is it's kind of a... Oh, um, mutates do need to target non-human creatures. Oh, yeah. That is also a thing. Humans don't get to mutate. Now, as with all new mechanics, I have a question about this mechanic that is not answered in this article. Yeah? 
that's probably not going to come up in limited, but it probably will happen in constructed at some point. Okay. If you have a mutated creature in play, it's got a stack of dudes, right? Right. If your mutated creature leaves the battlefield and returns, does it come back in as one creature or separate creatures? Hmm. I think it's probably going to be separate creatures, but it's just something interesting because it's like that creature leaves the battlefield and returns to the battlefield, right? Mm-hmm. What, like what exactly happens there? But I, I think it's going to come back as separate creatures. But I, I think that's something that Wattie probably should clarify for people. Yeah, because it does say, no, like if something happens to that creature, the entire stack moves to the designated zone, right? So if it gets exiled, they all go to exile. If it gets returned to your hand, they all get returned to your hand, right? Mm-hmm. But if it gets like blinked, or flickered, or whatever, it gets exiled, then they'll all go to exile, and then it comes back. Do you just get the one back, or do they all come back as one, or do you get a whole bunch of creatures back? Yeah, I think it splits them up, is what I expect would happen. But if it does split them up, if that's the case, then why would you get all of them back? Wouldn't you just get the one that was targeted? Because mechanically, when a card leaves a zone, it no longer tracks that card generally. And so the, like tracking that these creatures were all mutated together, I think is probably mm-hmm. not going to track across zone changes. It's just right. they all got returned to your hand or they all got exiled. Mm-hmm. And then when they return to the battlefield, they all go to the battlefield. It's just like, well, the creature's entering the battlefield. Put it on the battlefield. Right. No, no, I, I get your reasoning there. My question, though, is like, say, say our says... Uh, exile target card, then return it to the battlefield, and you target a mutated creature, then all of the cards get exiled, right? Yeah. But then if they're individual objects, how come all of them would come back? They were all targeted to exile the battlefield and return. Okay. They were all one card before. Fair enough. That seems to make sense then. And I, I just, we'll like, that's what, what I expect. ruling is. But sometimes Watsi comes out with stuff and they're like, nah, that's not how it works. <laughs> Why would we do it in a way that makes sense? <laughs> right. And as far as Mutate goes, I think we we were talking about this earlier. I don't really like it. Like, I don't have a problem with it. You know, I will get to what I have a problem with in the set here in a bit, right? But I don't have a problem with it. It seems fine. It's just, it doesn't really seem good most of the time. It's not going to be powerful because most of the time you would rather have multiple creatures than one creature, especially because this doesn't even make your creature a lot bigger. You know, mm-hmm. so like you have to choose which power and toughness it has. So generally you're going to choose just the biggest one, but then the other one, all that power and toughness just doesn't exist. And all you do is get the abilities and you have the abilities anyway, if you just cast the creature. So sure, there are some corner cases and, and specific scenarios where having all of the abilities on one creature is going to matter a lot more. And there's probably lots of cases where combining two particular abilities just works well together on one creature but i still feel like the vast majority of the time the more powerful thing you can do is have two creatures and so it's not good it doesn't seem like a good powerful ability to me and i also just it doesn't really seem all that interesting because like it seems like it's only really cool and interesting if you're the sort of player who like pretends to be casting spells on stuff and and pretends to be a planeswalker while they're playing magic and i i don't mean sound condescending when i say that if you're playing pretend and you're like oh cool so i've got this dinosaur creature and then it mutates and it gets really tall so now it has reach and then it mutates again and gets camouflaged so now it's unblockable or something like okay i see how that's cool if you're thinking about it that way but to me the way i play What seems to be happening is, I'm going to cast this spell, 
that gives my creature reach, and this other spell that gives my creature unblockable. And that's not any more interesting than an aura. Yeah, which is... they're, they're kind of like different auras as far as like yeah. how good they are. And so I think that like auras, as far as in card evaluation for constructed goes, you kind of have to go, okay, is this going to recoup my card advantage or give me a good enough board position in the game to be worth doing? Mm-hmm. And the ones that do either of those things will be playable and constructed and the ones that don't won't. But right. pretty much these are great limited cards because worst case scenario, you have this creature you can cast, right? Yeah. And so in limited, yeah, they're like kind of like aura, better aura creature. Just like the aura that they have is kind of shitty. Like it's like, oh, I have an aura that gives my creature reach. That's not great, but right. But you could use it to trigger something else's mutate ability, so it could be good. Or you could yeah. just play it as a creature. Yeah, that's fair. But I think basically what it comes down to for me is like, our listeners may not be particularly familiar with the magic player identities, Timmy, Johnny, and Spike. But if you are, I kind of feel like Spike th- looks at this and goes like, oh, this isn't very good, I don't care. And Johnny looks at it and says, oh, this isn't very interesting, I don't care. Like, Timmy maybe likes this. You know, it's like, oh, it's cool. It's a cool thing. It's splashy and interesting, but only for Timmy. And that's fine. Like, it's okay to make cards for Timmy, but I don't care. You know? (laughs) Yeah. I'm the kind of Timmy, though, that wants big creatures, and this doesn't make my creatures bigger. So I don't, I'm not huge on it either. Yeah. But there are some big creatures that take. Maybe, maybe I could get on board. Yeah, I mean, it's like I mentioned, uh, when, when I was looking at the, just the, the different cards, it is, uh, a green one, you know, so that's that's got to catch your attention, right? Mm-hmm. Here it is. Uh, Auspicious Starex is a 6-6 six, six for 5. It's a green and 4. It's an elk beast with mutate for 5 and a green. And it says, whenever this creature mutates, exile cards from the top of your library until you exile X permanent cards, where X is the number of times this creature is mutated, put those permanent cards onto the battlefield. And this one is interesting. It's a little bit expensive, so we'll see the speed of the set will determine whether or not this is actually, like, a good card or not. But, I mean, it's big. It's bigger than its mana cost, so like that that at face value is okay, that's kinda neat. And that ability can be super powerful, especially if you have a bunch of other cheap mutate cards in your deck, you know? Yeah. So I don't think this this ability is inherently bad or inherently uninteresting. It's just the ability itself doesn't seem to be inherently good or inherently interesting, you know? Yes, for the mutate ability? Yeah. Yeah, okay, it's like, Auspicious Darks' ability seems inherently good. What are you talking about? But you meant <laughs> mutate itself. No, yeah, 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 I'm talking about mutate. Basically what it comes down to is, like, for me, the mutate ability, I don't know. It doesn't really move the needle. I don't like it, but I, I you know, I'm not upset by it. Yeah, I... I don't particularly like the mutate mechanic, but I, I don't think it's something that's going to make me dislike a card. And so it's just yeah. like some of the cards with mutate all like... You know what? I think, I think the reason why I'm kind of down on it is because I feel kind of disappointed. Like, before we knew what mutate did, I was interested. I'm like, ooh, how, how do you mutate cards? What, what, how, did, how did they come up with a way to make you like able to change a card that's already on the battlefield, you know? Yeah. And then they did this, and I was like, oh... I don't find that interesting. Not that it's anything wrong with it, you know, I'm just like, oh, I don't know what I expected, you know? But it's no pleasing some people. Yeah, yeah, true enough. But uh, I understand that you really love Companion, right? Nope. <laughs> well, you explain to me how it works. Uh, Companion says that you can start with this card outside your deck, and if your Companion 
requirements are met, then you can cast it just like normally. Like you're allowed to cast it from outside the game. And the companions are always going to be a deck building constraint. Your deck has to have been built a specific way. So your companion comes with some extra rules about how you have to build your deck. But if you follow those rules, then you're allowed to cast your companion from outside the game. In a tournament, this is going to mean your sideboard. Yeah. But uh, if you're just playing at the kitchen table, you just got to make sure you point out when you start the game, hey, this is my companion for this game. Yeah, and if you're playing in a tournament, you do need to announce at the beginning of the game, hey, I have this companion that I can cast. Okay. So, for an example, this companion that they have in the article says, your deck contains only cards with converted mana cost three or greater and land cards. Oh, and you can only have one companion of the game. I didn't know you could only have but that's fair. So that means you can only have, like, you can't have more than one thing that is your companion, or you can't have more than one copy of the companion card? It is both. Okay. But this is kind of like miniature commander for inside standard. Yeah. It doesn't have its own exclusive commander zone, but it, it is sitting outside the game. Everyone knows what it is, and you can cast it whenever you can cast it. But if it dies or anything like that, it just it goes to the graveyard like a normal creature. Right. No putting it back in the sideboard. Right. And it also comes with deck building rules like Commander does. I mean, every game of Commander has the same deck building rules, you know, but they are different from your normal 60 card deck. And so it's kind of like that sort of in a way too like if you build your deck a certain way then you get to have this commander in standard yeah i don't like it but that's mostly because i'm a judge probably and so i'm going to have to deal with the fallout well i'm not a judge and i hate it i think this is a bad mechanic and i big fan of magic you know doing a podcast about it so i hate to go on the show and talk about magic being bad but this is but also i'm not gonna just fanboy i'm not trying to sell you magic cards you know like I, I think this is bad. It's a bad mechanic that but, they shouldn't have made. You know, it's one of those things that for them to have home runs like Throne of Eldraine and stuff, you've got to have mm-hmm. some uh, some not as good sets like Ikoria. Just strikes. Yeah, you got some strikes. Ikoria, so far there's no mention of Kiora. Yeah, and... Maro says that there won't be, and if he is correct about that, then they have messed up. Yeah, definitely. That's a mistake. I And this companion thing, so like, to elaborate a bit more, like Donovan said that he doesn't like it because he's a judge. And I, I think this, this is why. And it's part of why I don't like it, although I'm not a judge, is he, the judge can't ov- walk over and look at the board state and be like, oh yeah, that's not that's not right. Or that is, that's fine. Yeah, like, they just have to go through your whole deck. For the most part, though, why would somebody use one of the companions and then put cards in their deck that meant they couldn't use them? Because you have to announce them at the beginning of the game, which means you can't play those cards for the entire game. Yeah. The ones that it really matters, that matters a lot with, is going to be, like, the otter that says you can't have more than one copy of a card in your deck. Okay, so you put two copies of a really good card in your deck cheat, mm-hmm. and just if you draw a second one, then you just won't use it, and you're like, it's okay, I drew the first one. We're good, you know? Yeah. But, like, a lot of them are stuff like can't have CMC three or less, or can't have an odd number of card in your deck. And so, like, if you're playing with the companion, like, shouldn't include those in your deck, because it's very, if you cast them, you lose, you know? Yeah, that's true. I just don't like the... So it's just the ones that are hard to tell whether or not... If a card that breaks that rule is being played, it's hard to tell whether or not you're breaking that rule is the ones that it's really a problem. Mm -hmm. Because that's the thing. It's like, if you have this guy in your deck that says that 
you can't have anything in your deck with converted man cost two or less other than blue, right? Then right. if you play one of those cards, you lose the game. So you shouldn't include that card in your deck. Right. But it's just, it's going to be confusing for new players about deck building. And some people can maybe gotcha some new players about it. But also, like, what if, I think generally this isn't going to be true. Because, like, this one, this example here is a 5-4 four for 5. Actually, this isn't too bad, just as a creature. It's a 5-4 five, for 5, and it says, when it enters the battlefield, you draw a card for each other permanent you control with converted mana cost 3 or greater. So, like, what if you just want to play that card? And then it's on the battlefield, and then, you know, the, you're the judge, and you're just, you know, walking around, and you look and you look down, and you see this guy on the battlefield with a bunch of 2-drops. And you're like, okay, they haven't called a judge yet, so probably it's just, you know, a creature in their deck. I guess it's not too confusing, but... That is a situation where you, it's not possible to look at that and see, is this right or wrong? Yeah, you know? that's true. I mean, I guess that's true for a lot of things. Because like, if I just put a creature card from my hand onto the battlefield without paying for it, it's not possible to look at that and say whether it's right or wrong. You know, you just gotta wait and see, d- did my opponent call a judge about it, right? Yeah. So I guess that it's not really special in that way. I just, I don't, I, there's two things here that I don't, there's really, <laughs> there's really three things that Magic does sometimes that I really think are not okay for Magic to do. And one of them is double face cards. I don't like double face cards. We won't go off into it, but I think every Magic card should have a Magic card back. And these don't do that, so we're in the clear on that one. But the other two is I don't like Wish cards, which is the other place I've seen this in the past. I don't like cards that reference the sideboard or interact with the sideboard. To me, the sideboard is a tournament rules thing, that only exist in tournaments. And so magic cards should not care whether you're playing it in a tournament or not. And I realize wish cards work outside of tournaments. If you're not playing a tournament, then your sideboard in that case can just be all of the cards you have. And it works. It's just I don't like that cards interact in that way. I don't think that that's how cards should work. Yeah. And then the other one, and I don't know if I've even seen this before... But it just immediately, I'm like, I don't like this. Is these cards also establish different rules for your deck construction than anyone else in that same format? Like, you're playing, say, Standard, and there are deck construction rules for Standard, and then these also establish different deck construction rules that not only do you have to follow, and then it's different from everyone else, also, this is a non-visible thing that no one can know whether you've done or not that you're supposed to do, and I'm just supposed to trust you that you did it, I'm fairly trusting. I will. Like, I'm not saying, like, oh, I don't like this because now I don't know if my opponent's cheating or not. I just don't like the idea that there's this deck construction rules change on cards. Yeah. The deck construction rules, to me, really ought to be something outside of what the cards are doing. I don't feel... That's just another place kind of like the wish cards and these cards interacting with the sideboard, I don't feel like cards should interact with that that part of the game. That is a rules thing that I feel like should be outside the purview of of manipulation by cards, you know? Yeah, um, I think it's something that's not super interesting, so I think it's just going to be a, like a hassle, Yeah, and I don't think that those make for good mechanics. Because the companion mechanic is the deck constraint is not adding anything, Mm-hmm. it's just a cost of this companion that you're adding elsewhere. Yeah, it, mechanically, it's just supposed to justify your advantage of having an additional card that you can play. Yeah, so I just, I don't think that it's, I this is not a winner for me, mechanics-wise. Yeah, I also think that 
even if like like I was talking about before, it does the fact of these cards existing doesn't necessitate a lot more deck checks or people calling for rules on this stuff. But I do feel like any time there is any question about these cards, that will necessitate a deck check. So even if it's not a huge sudden jump where every deck is getting deck checked every match now, I feel like this is going to increase the number of necessary deck checks at events. And that isn't a good thing because a deck check takes a bunch of time. Yeah. And then the players have to get an extension. And so then these players may be playing after the round is over and we just have to wait. Because they got an extension because they were deck checked because they're playing a companion. And so that player may get an extension and a deck check freaking every brand. Yeah. Because, like, if you play a, the companion that says you can't have more than a copy of cards in your deck, and you play cards that shuffle cards back into your deck, if you play a card again, your opponent has no way of knowing. It's like, oh, did he just draw the one he shuffled back in? Or is that a new, like, the, did he actually have two of those in his deck? And if you draw it quickly, they may be like, I don't believe that you drew it that quick and call a judge on you. Yeah, I just... I I really dislike the companion ability, and I feel like Mutate is kind of disappointing and not really doing anything for me, and so I just... I'm kind of down on this set, and it's... I'm a little bit sad about that, because it seems like I said, like, as... I think the companion is suffering from a similar problem to the Mutate in that if you're the kind of player who's pretending to be a planeswalker casting spells and battling another planeswalker when you're playing, then this this is fun and interesting, you know? It's like, ooh, and I'm a planeswalker, I have this dinosaur hippo who's my friend, you know? And they show up with me when I'm battling, and so they could help out any time. Like, that's, sure, that's interesting if you're that kind of player. I don't know if I know any players like that, though. Mm -hmm. I'm not one. I'm, I don't care about that flavor aspect of it. And I don't know, maybe I'm just boring. Like, I don't think cards would be better. I don't think cards would be better if they didn't have any artwork or flavor, if they're just numbers and abilities, you know? I don't think that would make them better. And... I think it would make them dramatically worse. Yeah, I, I think it would make them worse. But I also feel like it wouldn't change that much about how I interact with Magic now. If they had always been that way, I wouldn't have got into Magic. Also, if they made that change now... I would not like that. But I could, at this point, play Magic with cards like that, and it wouldn't really change my experience very much. Yeah, same. So I don't know, this sort of, like, playing pretend aspect. And like I said earlier, I don't mean to sound condescending when I say playing pretend. I just don't really know a better way to communicate the idea that I'm talking about. Role-playing? Sure, but players who are role-playing as a Planeswalker when they're playing Magic, maybe this will be a great set for them, because there's a lot of cool stuff for them in that, like, flavor things in here that, like, flavorfully are interesting, but mechanically they're not. And in as far as Companion goes, it's actually bad. Or I think it's bad. So Yeah, I think what's so disappointing to me is that it feels a lot like Ixalan with all these dinosaurs and stuff. Yeah. But they don't have the cool mechanics to back it up. The flavor and everything that's going on in the pictures and stuff like that is really cool. But what you're actually doing with the cards is kind of not. Yeah, it seems like it's a lot of bright colors and flashing lights, but very little content and, and depth to the game. Yeah. And so I'm out. Like, you know, not like I won't play with the cards, you know? Yeah. I'll get packs and I'll do my drafts and who knows, maybe it'll turn out that I will really enjoy it. But right now I'm like, oh man, this is lame. And I'm going to build some companion decks on Arena, but am I 
likely to play them in paper? Probably not. Oh, that was another thing that, that you brought up earlier that I want to be sure we mention before we move on, though. Because it also seems like this companion mechanic is something that will function much more easily on Arena Any digital than magic. in paper. Yeah, it really kind of shows Watsy's hand in that it really has felt like, in certain ways, and this seems to confirm that they are looking... F- towards the future of Magic as a digital card game much more than they believe in Magic's future in paper. Yeah, and I think that that's probably smart of them, but it is unfortunate for them to show their hand. Yeah, I also I think it's smart of them to realize that Magic will have a successful future in digital and to care about that and do things to make sure that they can capitalize on that because digital card games are successful. And maybe it will continue to be a big hit forever because of just, you know, all the the great things about playing on Arena. The ease of access to events or play with your friends and stuff like that, you know. Uh, But also, I really feel like they need to remember that Paper Magic has only grown more successful over time. And most video game trends are very, like, fad-structured, where for... Right now, Fortnite is still, like, the biggest game. But, you know, for a while, everyone wanted to make a Battle Royale game. And that's what every company seemed to think, oh, the future of our company is in in making a Battle Royale game that's just going to be the biggest success in the world. But it turns out, Fortnite is the only one that's maintained that kind of success. And companies seriously lost money investing in Battle Royale. And I'm not suggesting Magic shouldn't invest in being a digital card game, but what I'm saying is that bubble could burst, and the paper Magic scene, I think, is where you're going to want to fall back on. And I'm not suggesting that they are, but I just want them to be careful not to move from paper to digital. You know, they need to be supporting both. Yeah, I think that they, they shouldn't do stuff like this that doesn't work very well in paper, but works very well online, especially when it's, it's not that interesting of a mechanic because there's already a creature that says if you cast spell cmc five or greater draw a card and that already incentivizes players are like well what if i just build a deck that's all those you know right so putting this thing where you have to build your deck that way so that you can play the card is not really like you don't have to build your deck that way to play the card you have to build your deck that way to use it as a companion but the mechanic Mm -hmm. being you have to build your deck this way to take advantage of this mechanic i don't think makes it interesting right it's not adding anything interesting yeah i don't know i'm just i I don't like companion yeah i don't like it's a really complicated drawback i think that's part of so part of it is i just don't like the idea that the card is changing the deck construction rules i guess basically i feel like your deck ought to have whatever cards are in it like if you set it down face down deck you know across the table from me i feel like it ought to have potentially anything in it you know and like those cards could come up and change anything, right? But until they come up, they don't matter. Mm-hmm. And the companion is start at the game. You're like, here's my companion. It has already changed this game, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. I guess one could argue that all cards are that way. That you just don't know about it. Because, like, I'm playing uh, an aggressive deck. I want to play with Goblin Guide. And uh, the best... I'm going to get the best out of that by playing goblin guides and lightning bolts and goblin bushwhacker and 
what whatever else, you know, went into my deck because I made these decisions based on other cards that I have in my deck. Yeah. And I just didn't tell you that when we when I sat down across from you. I'm like, yeah, I see that position, but you didn't have to. Yeah. And I don't know. It's interesting when people play with cards in ways that are not intended and these ones don't present a lot of opportunity to do that. Yeah. So I just I, I don't like it. But I've said that a lot already and probably repeated myself several times and and I know people don't, don't want to hear about me being down on companion for the entire cast so uh what else anything else in um in this stuff that you wanted to talk about Donovan mechanically that's it what else have we got here uh, we've got some sort of a uh, flavor stuff here that we probably will sp- there's there's gonna be a a, a book for this set they've, they've done a book for this one so we'll talk about the actual story another time but What I thought was interesting out of this little flavor guide is apparently each of the different areas of Ikoria are composed of three different colors of mana. And, you know, we've seen tri-colored creature cards and stuff in this set, but I wonder if you think that means we're going to get tri-lands of some kind? Uh, I don't know if we'll get tri-lands. Maybe. So we haven't seen any of the lands for this set yet, right? That's true. What are the tri-areas? You want to know, like, what their names are or what colors they are? Colors. Okay, so the flavor guide doesn't actually say specifically. They say things like, Savai oh, it's... green, red, black, Jund. What? You think so? Well, it said that it's... Oh, no, it's white, red. Grassy plains atop mountainous cliff faces and swampy oh, subterranean the, the, tunnels. So it seems like the cons white, red. Ones, I remember because they have the um, commander decks that are aligned with the cons. Yeah, I was saying, like, the, the flavor guide doesn't actually specifically say, but they uh they do say on them what the apex monster is for each biome, and it seems like there is a, like, legendary monster creature in each of these places, and so the one for Savai, or whatever it's called, is Snapback's Apex of the Hunt, and he is a black, a white, a red, and one to cast, so. And there's also the terrain thing on each section, kind of. Yeah, that, that could, I think that if you, uh... You know, you can read into that and it's fairly clear, but there are a couple where I was like, wait, so is that one blue? You know? Yeah, it's the, it's the clan. Some places where like blue and black can be sometimes hard to differentiate because, you know, both are very wet, like swamps and yeah, whatever, you know, so. But yeah, it's, it's the clans from, from cons. And in that set, we had Trilands, you know, we had like Frontier yeah. Bivouac or whatever. Do you think that they'll just reprint those ones? Or do you uh, maybe. think that- because those ones are not plane specific. Right. Sandstep Citadel might not make like Indatha might not make sense to have a Sandstep Citadel in it. Yeah, but I mean, you can put a Citadel like anywhere, you know. <laughs> like sure, there's not really any reason you shouldn't have one in Indatha. It's just it, weird there. Yeah, I think Mystic Monastery wouldn't really fit very well. Yeah. And, uh, like, Opulent Palace maybe wouldn't fit very well in Ikoria. Yeah. But Nomad Outpost would probably be good. That would probably work fine. Frontier Bivouac would probably be fine. Yeah. Or they might give us something on rares. They might give us rare ones. Yeah. Because they're doing common duel. Right. And they may not have them at all, but I'm just commenting. If they have, try land. Yep. So, like, we don't know, but that was my, basically just my Ooh, speculation. Or they could be, I like... it was interesting, like, they might be doing try lands. um... The ones from, what is it, like Irrigation Ditch and stuff. Those ones were interesting. Or like they tap for one color and then you can sacrifice them for two different colors. Oh, yeah. Something like that, that could interesting. be interesting. Sure. Or maybe... uh, 
make those mud holes people all bought recently relevant. Maybe you do something slightly diff, like a, a slight variation on that, where like is just a land that taps for a color, but you can like cycle it to add the other two colors to your mana pool. Mm-hmm. That might be interesting. Say it costs two to cycle, then it's just filtering colors once. I mean, you and know? you drew a card. But so yeah, I heard Manamorphos is a hell of a card. It's true. That's true. I don't know if it would be super interesting, but it might be super good. Yeah, that might be good. I kind of like that card design. But, oh, speaking of mana, another thing that is, is actually a mechanical thing that we didn't mention is hybrid is coming back. We have some hybrid mana costs. Yeah. I think we explained what that was uh, before, and it, people are pretty familiar with it. It's just, you know, the mana symbol has two different miniature mana symbols on it, and you can pay either one. So And the card is both colors. So yeah, even if it's a, say, one mana card that costs, say, either black or blue, it is a gold card. Because it's a black and blue card. Although generally people say gold cards, they're talking about not hybrid. Yeah, that's true. It's also, especially because the hybrid cards don't necessarily have gold borders. Yeah, say the card frame design. Typically they put both colors on it instead of gold. Unless it is, like, say, a blue, a black, and a hybrid blue-black, then it would be gold. But yeah. It, there's flavor stuff here. It might be interesting to check out. I'll, I'll include a link so that people can come read this if they want to. It, it is interesting if you're interested in what Aquaria is going to be like. They apparently have what they call clades. Uh, clades of monsters. It seems to be basically the a very general class or... It's not quite species, because, you know, there would be a bunch of different species within a clade, right? But, mm-hmm. but like, each biome has its unique kind of monsters. There's one that is mostly elemental monsters, and one that is mostly dinosaurs, and one that is mostly nightmares, and, and so on and so forth. One that's all cats. So, you know, I know a lot of people out there are cat lovers. So, you know, there's interesting stuff like that in here. I don't know that there's anything I particularly want to talk about. Uh, anything else that you noticed, Donovan, that we should talk about before we um, if, move well, on? Well, in the the guide thing, bonders might be something worth. Well, so what 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 are the bonders? Uh, it seems to be a person who forms some kind of magical bond with a creature. Yeah, it's like they have a familiar. Like basically, in, in Ikoria, the the people keep themselves separate from the monsters, right? Like the humans have their cities in like difficult to reach places to protect themselves from the monsters and they don't travel in the wilderness because humans are not at the top of the food chain on this plane Mm -hmm. and so people do everything they can not to interact with the monsters except there are a couple different kinds of people one is hunters who you know are these kind of loner people who go out there and hunt the monsters and the other one are the bonders who are people who have learned to coexist with monsters and well maybe not all of them but have developed a bond with a specific monster in there. They're like a... There was a, a mechanic in... Um, not Innistrad. Talking about Soulbond? Yeah, Soulbond. Avacyn or Sword? That one. Yeah. There's Soulbond where these two creatures were connected to each other and work in tandem. And that's kind of the... Bonders are humans who have connected with a monster. But they have to live outside the cities and stuff because they're exiled when they become bonded to a monster. So... They live with their monster in the wilderness. Yeah, and they their connection is called an Eluda. Mm-hmm. It's a magical bond between them. They share emotions via this, but not thoughts. Right. They don't share a language no. or speak to each other, but they do have this like emotional connection where they can feel each other's feelings and stuff. Yeah. And I guess this is maybe meant to be represented by the companion mechanic. But we'll see where that goes. Yeah, right. All right, where were we? What's next? 
No, I, I think that's really it. I'm ready to grab that top hat. Alrighty. I'm ready for you to grab your top hat. Why is my judge hat now a top hat? I decided it is, at least for this okay. episode. I'll wear a top hat this time. Judge! Judge! What's up? Oh, I, I, I didn't actually have a question. What are you called Judge? Just being... Yeah, I know. You're the worst I didn't, I didn't kind realize. of magic player. I was just kidding. Yeah, I know. It happens all the time. They're super annoying. Does it really? Yeah. People call a judge as a joke? They they yell judge because they're making a joke with their opponent that they're going to call a judge on them, but there's a judge in the room that has to win. That is... Listeners, don't do that. <laughs> Anyways, what I was going to come here to talk about was while we were talking about stuff for this episode, I was talking about a card that says that you can put any number of auras from your graveyard on the battlefield attached to creatures you control. Yeah. And then at the end of turn, exile them. And if they would go anywhere else instead, exile them. And I just wanted to kind of talk about, there's some cards that have had that type of mechanic before where they say, if the card would go anywhere else, exile it instead. Yeah. And there's some cards that interact with that in interesting ways and ways you can get around that. Okay. And I kind of wanted to mention kind of how that works today. Sure. So in standard, the only way I think this is really likely to come up is if you use the storm herald to return an aura to the battlefield and you attach it to your thing and then you play something that says exile a permanent you control return it to the battlefield or specifically exile enchantments and turns into the battlefield yeah and so this is not likely to come up because storm herald and then the cards that do that are different colors from each other so you have to be playing a herald deck that is specifically also the color of cards that does that kind of thing it's not likely to come up in Standard, but it does come up in Pioneer. Mm-hmm. Whip of Erebos is an artifact that can return a creature from your graveyard to the battlefield and give it haste, and then at the end of turn, you exile that guy, and if it would go anywhere else, you exile it instead. And there is numerous ways in Pioneer to exile your creature into the battlefield. Yeah. And then there's also like a creature that says at the end of turn, exile him, and then the next turn, you return him to the battlefield. Yeah. And those things all get around them. And the way that works is, if this card would go anywhere else, you exile it. But if you exile it, it did the thing, and now this ability stops mattering. And then you can now return it to the battlefield and keep it forever. Right, because it doesn't say, if it changes zones, exile it. Instead, it says, if it changes zones for anywhere but exile, then you exile it? Well, no, it's saying, if it changes zones, exile it. But it's just like, you're replacing that effect with what you were doing already. So it doesn't actually change anything about the effect you replaced because you it it doesn't. You know what I yeah. mean? So the replacement effect says that if it would leave the battlefield, exile it instead of it leaving the battlefield. It's like, well, and so your mechanic that says exile it, then return it, isn't being affected by the fact that instead of exile, you're exiling it. Okay, so it doesn't actually replace the whole ability. No, it just replaces what zone it would go to. So if something says that you return a card to your hand, mm-hmm. instead it gets exiled, and so if that card was supposed to track that card it would have lost track of it it's trying to what track okay. a card that went to your so hand and it didn't i know it. that this card doesn't exist or at least as far as i know but what if a card said return target creature to to its owner's hand and then return it to the battlefield like, if it got exiled would it then get returned to the battlefield does it just change what zone it went to or would it interrupt the ability i presume it would interrupt the ability yeah but this doesn't because it isn't actually changing the ability correct okay and so just like the things that I wanted to bring that up with was if Storm Herald brings back this Colossification from the new set to give a creature plus 20 plus yeah. 20, 
and then you play Flicker of Fate, which exiles a creature and enchantment and then returns to the battlefield. Mm-hmm. You could Flicker of Fate your classification to keep it on your creature forever. Okay. You could do a similar thing with the Fairy's Time Twist, but that brings it back at the turn. Wait, so if I if I use the Chandra that makes a couple of elemental tokens, and then I Flicker of Fate my elemental tokens so I get to keep them forever? No, because if a token leaves the battlefield, it's easy. Yeah, I know. I was just being dumb. <laughs> if your Chandra put an elemental from your graveyard into play, such as Thunderkin Awakener does, and at the end of turn, sacrificed it. You could flicker of fate it. So, flicker of fate. Uh, alternate way of explaining what that card does is keep the things you're not supposed to get to keep. Yeah, as long as they can survive going to exile. Right. What else? No, that's what I wanted to talk about. Oh, okay. That mechanic is there to stop you from keeping the thing, no matter what you would do. About right. It, except there is one way to keep the thing. Just exile it anyway. When when the yeah. when the ability looks and says like, hey, wait. You were supposed to exile that if you did anything with it. You're like, yeah, I did. It's like, yeah, I was, I was exiling it. You got me. So like, yeah, I, I exiled it. And then I came back. And since the game, I don't think you mentioned this, but I think it is relevant. Since the game treats things coming like back from exile as a new object, then that no longer applies to it, right? So if you do Correct. anything with it, exile it instead. Well, I did exile it, and then it came back. But when it came back, it's a new one, so it is not affected by that ability. That's what happens. Fantastic. Cool. Let's let's move on to the feedback. Dude, this thing claims I have mail. It's amazing what we can do with computers these days. Dude, now I'm reading it. We got an email from Turnum Sideways and a long-time listener. We haven't heard from Turnum Sideways in a few episodes, so long-time listeners will know that Turnum Sideways emails us fairly, not regularly, but consistently. Consistently, yeah. And Turnum Sideways. Uh, always has a lot to say and always says that they like our episodes but uh <laughs> likes to pick them apart yeah don't worry though listeners he's never right <laughs> i think he almost always has good points you know like interesting stuff uh makes some good points frequently has some correct information in the email that is worthwhile right and so mm-hmm. Our intention, and I've talked to Turnum Sideways about this and got permission, our intention is to make Turnum Sideways emails all available on our website as, like, articles, just to kind of companion pieces to some of our episodes. And I haven't got that done yet, just because I need to make some changes to the website to be able to do that very well. I haven't managed to get that post yet. I was really hoping that that would be ready before now, but hasn't been the case. But I will get all of Turnum Sideways stuff up there, and as soon as I do, I'll let everyone know so you guys can go and read these. Because they are interesting and worth reading. However, all of that is to say I'm not going to read the whole thing on our show, because that would take like an entire episode (laughs) but basically but this this email in particular is uh, thanks for more great episodes guys especially during this time of isolation he says i was listening to the tumpidence episode recently and i was struggling he says he listened to it a couple times to make sure he hadn't misunderstood but there's a particular point that he just didn't agree with and basically to to, to boil down a a fairly lengthy email uh, he says that we spoke a lot about confidence and is generous of him to to point out that this was what the the article we were reading was about. So, you know, even if we agreed that this was a mistake, it was from the article, right? That he thinks that the idea in the article of confidence is being conflated with the idea of optimism. He says to quote, 
You see, confidence is a thing of cold rationality. It is a reasonable judgment of the likelihood of a proposition based on evidence, experience, available data, and so on. Your confidence in your likelihood to win ought to be based on factors which you can rightly evaluate. And he goes on about that, dot 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 a bit, and says a little further down, you see, our confidence is an evaluation of our probable outcome. And you said yourself that this value should correspond with reality. And then a few more dots, and yet you then go right back to telling people that they ought to always have a high degree of confidence, even in the face of bad odds. And that's just irrational. And trying to square the circle by telling people they should have a high degree of confidence within reason is just a tautology. What you describe, I think, is optimism. And, and he says that he thinks that I would, would call this argument semantics, and that he thinks that it, it actually matters which words you're using. Um, I would argue it probably doesn't, but that's not actually my main issue with his argument. But he says optimism is about hope, is about recognizing that even low probability events happen sometimes, and being willing to make decisions that put yourself in a position to take advantage of such an event if it should come along. So his confidence, on the other hand, is about making an accurate, rational assessment of the probability that that event will actually occur. And then, you know, a few more, few more dots. Like I said, I'm not going to read this whole thing. But uh, just a bit further down, this is the faulty thinking I mentioned above is the issue you discussed wherein your confidence affects your gameplay, which is absolutely true, generally. It's well understood that lower degree of confidence actually do affect success rates. I'm not disputing that. I also agree that the answer to this is training but not in the area you guys suggested. And this is, I think, the, the primary message that he wants to communicate to our listeners. He says, you suggest that you should train yourself to be more confident. I propose that instead you should train yourself to divorce your gameplay from your confidence level. Your confidence level, or indeed your optimism, doesn't have to change the way you play. You can still learn to look for advantageous lines of play, evaluate risk-reward scenarios, and make the right moves, even if you don't think your chances of success are very high. Do the right thing even if you don't think it will work out. Because thanks to your optimistic outlook, it might sometimes. Oh, and uh, I'll give, give him credit for his, for his funnies. He signs off with, always optimistic, but rationally confident. Turn him sideways. And I'm not, I'll, give, I'll give you a second that you could actually talk here in a moment before your phone dies. But uh, the main issue I have where I disagree with turn them sideways, um, isn't actually the semantics. I think it is true that, you know, that you can use the words that you like. Uh, I think it matters what word you use. You can use words wrong, but that's not the problem I he have here. The problem I have is when turn them sideways describes confidence as cold rationality. It is the judgment of the likelihood of a proposition based on available data. I'm like, mm, I don't think that's true, actually, like at all that I do not think that's what confidence is. I think that it's he not. says immediately <laughs> after that, your confidence in your likelihood to win ought to be based on factors which you can rightly evaluate. And I do agree with that. I think that's the entire point of the article that we were discussing, is that if you have good reasons not to be confident, then you should work on those. If not, then in that case, your confidence isn't based on factors which you can rightly evaluate then your confidence is based on something else. And that's when we said that you should work on raising your confidence level because your confidence doesn't correspond to your likelihood to actually win. And turn them sideways, confidence may always be based on the actual facts. And you can be optimistic also, or pessimistic, or, or whatever. But most people, or I don't know about most, I, I haven't evaluated enough people to know. I will say some people, and I think many people, frequently 
have a confidence level that does not correspond to the actual likelihood that they will win. And that's the issue that we were discussing. Now, whether that ought to be the case or not is an entirely different issue. Well, I mean, I guess I feel like we did kind of discuss it. But the difference between confidence and optimism is your confidence... If you say you have a 10% chance to succeed at any given task, right? Your confidence is whether or not you think you can manage a 10% success rate. You know, like, can I be in that 10% I think yes or no? Your optimism... It really just comes down to your attitude. Like, when you're presented with this, you're like, oh, good, I have a chance. Or, oh, dang, that's unlikely. You know, that's optimism versus pessimism. Confidence is whether you think you can manage it or not. And we're talking about whether or not that corresponds to reality is what the article is about. And so I think part of the article was about, I think maybe the person writing the might should have talked more about optimism and pessimism as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might have made their article a little bit more clear to people, and especially to turn them sideways. <laughs> sure. But I think that they were talking about how confidence is basically your belief in your abilities, whether or not you think that you can do well. And there was parts in the article where the person was talking about how they were unfavored in a matchup, but they went into it confidently because they thought if the things that happened happened so that I could win, then I will see those lines and I will make those plays. Mm-hmm. And so they were confident, even though they didn't actually have a good shot of winning. Sure. And they also talked about how they, they thought they were going to win, mm-hmm. which might have been a little bit self-delusional. Sure. But it was drawn on their confidence in the fact that they would see the lines of play that they needed. I think that the article might should have talked a little bit about the difference between confidence and optimism and how what they're saying is you should be confident in your abilities. And once you've got that, you might should also be optimistic about your chances. Yeah. And that's that's where this like confidence comes in, is that this guy is very confident in himself. And because of that, he is very optimistic about his tournament results, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. And so I think that what we were talking about was... If you are not confident, be- I, I think you said it, but it's like, if you're not confident because of a reason, you should fix that. And then if you're not confident because you're not confident, then you should also fix that. You know, mm-hmm. confidence is not a cold, rational thing. It is a feeling is what it is. And some people's confidence is highly tied into reality and how they actually evaluate a situation. And Mm -hmm. some people's isn't. Some people just have low self-esteem and from that they have low confidence. Whether or not they actually, like if they actually look at it analytically and they go, oh, there's like no way I lose this game, then they might become more confident in that game. But if they didn't actually sit down and look at it, they may not feel that way. And they're just going to go, well, I'm going to lose. And they're not confident. Mm -hmm. And that's where like the, the person in the article who said they're going to the one that was a venue that was harder because they were going to lose no matter where they went. So they might as well go to the one that's going to be bigger. Yeah. And the person in the article was saying, no, they need to be more confident in their abilities because they're a good player. And yeah, that person was being pessimistic, but they're also not being confident. Right. And those, like, I think that Turnham Sideways is right, that confidence and optimism can be confused. But mm-hmm. I think that they are related things. And I think that somebody who is optimistic is more likely to be confident. Somebody who's pessimistic is more likely to not be confident. Sure. And I think you and Turnum Sideways here are are both right to point out that the concept of confidence being discussed in this article probably includes both confidence and optimism. And so it probably is important and valuable to consider 
whether or not you are being optimistic when you're considering these other factors that we were talking about relating to confidence? Well, I think that that's not necessarily the case, but I think the person who coined the term confidence was talking about a person who was both confident and optimistic. Sure. And I think that the thing that should be worked on necessarily is probably your confidence level. I think if you're just a pessimistic person and you're okay with that, then that might be fine. And it may not have a huge effect on your magic playing as long as you are taking that into account and being confident and making correct plays. Yeah. Like Turn Em Sideways says to do. But on the other hand, I think it is a lot easier to be either confident or not confident, but also optimistic than it is to be pessimistic and confident. Like I, I think it is probably very, very difficult to be confident if you are that pessimistic about your chances. Sure. And so, so I do think it's worthwhile to say like, yeah, maybe part of achieving this is also to remember to be optimistic as well. Sure, maybe. But I don't think that what we were talking about was optimism. I think what we were talking about is confidence, and it just, for some people, may be just like Turn Em Sideways described, and may be a direct result of your cold, rational evaluation of the probabilities. But for many people, that is not the case, and their confidence is not based on purely rational data. I think that Turnham Sideways might have a point that the person writing the article might should have mentioned optimism and pessimism. I just think that what they're talking about with confidence is not incorrect. It just was maybe not the whole skill. Sure. Perfectly happy for uh, Turnham Sideways to, to write into us again if they have any thoughts about our evaluation of their points here. Are you ready to close it up, Donovan? Yeah. I guess that's everything for today. Uh, thanks for joining me, Donovan, doing the podcast. As always, I, I appreciate you doing that with me. It's always fun for me. And thanks to all the listeners who come and listen to us every week. Uh, come back next week and we will do it again. Uh, probably not Ikoria. This is a joke I've used like four times. It's okay. We've reached the outro. People who don't want to listen to you anymore know to turn it off. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, if anybody is just waiting to hear your Twitter handle or wherever else they can find you right now, Don, where can people hunt you down if they're out hunting for monsters? Ouch. Um, you can find me on Twitter at day underscore Donovan. Uh, everywhere else, though, I've made myself pretty elusive, so harder to find me there. Hey, you're not going to tell people to visit your apartment this time? No. Well, I'm not there a lot right now. Right now, I'm having to make money pay rent, so I'm doing uber well if you call for an uber you might find me all right if you want to hear more from me i'm duncan you can find me on twitter at engine within or you can hear me on our other podcast it's called the list it's about video games and i host that with our brother daniel and uh that's that's pretty fun too so you can check out that show wherever you're getting this show whatever device or service you're using we should we should be there or you can visit our website at enginewithin.com to find more from this show more from the list and all the other things we do in the engine within network later days pasta lasagna don't get me on and it's it's all right if uh like since your phone died on it you can just hard in there instead of trying to play out something fade out whatever and do this a lot Hey, I actually had a thought. So, normally... What? You? No. Ha ha ha. Ha ha. Wait.
how many goblin snowmen do you have? Well, I had four. Okay. When you said stack, I was like, you have a stack of goblin snowmen. 